Hello, welcome back to the Rheumatology Physio podcast. And we are talking about hypermobility on this podcast with the wonderful Mike Marker. And really interesting little conversation. We try to um, get some evidence-based, common sense thoughts out there for physiotherapy and um, MSK practice and hypermobility. I think this will serve as a really good introduction for anybody who's unsure what they're doing with hypermobile joints or people with more generalized hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, those kinds of things. We talk a little bit about when to refer out um, for medical opinions and how we might start off treatment programs for people with hypermobility and also some other bits and pieces to look out for. So really hope that you enjoy um, this podcast. Just a little bit of extra news from me. The Room 101 conference tickets are being snapped up and there are not many of those left. I am recording this a little bit ahead of time. So if you might need to be even quicker uh, to go and get those last remaining tickets, especially the ones if you want to attend in Manchester itself, just head to rheumatology.physio forward slash event. There are other courses available on my website as well. I'm going to be in Birmingham, also um, Exeter, and also online. There are virtual options too. So head to rheumatology.physio forward slash courses for those. And finally, a little bit of secret news. Um, there will be a new at-a-glance book imminent. It's going to be ready very, very shortly. And hopefully you'll be able to pick one of those up from the shop on the website. But enough from me. And we'll go on to talk with Mike about hypermobility. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Rheumatology Physio Podcast. A um, little bit of a slightly different topic for us this time. Um, we're going to move away from inflammatory disorders, um, something slightly different. I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Macker from um, the US and we're going to talk about hypermobility and its various incarnations um, and hopefully get through some uh, good information. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and it can be difficult to wade through all of the information um, with regards to hypermobility. So um, we're going to try and get to um, some, some sensible middle ground, maybe, let's say that. Um, so Mike, just start us off, let the listeners know who you are, what you do, your, where's your interest in hypermobility come from? Sure. Hi, I'm, I'm Mike. Um, I... Um... I'm a physio or physical therapist in the American context. We speak American. Uh, so um, I, um, I uh, live in Portland, Oregon, and I work in Portland, Oregon, which is the West Coast um, Pacific Northwest region of, of the United States of America. Um, and I treat um, primarily patients with uh, hypermobility spectrum disorders, including primarily hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but a lot of people who don't have that too. Yeah. Real. And how long have you sort of done that for? Is that something that you've done for quite a while now? Um, it's been now a little over two years I've been doing this. Great. Just this, this, this specific clinic where I work, um, we, we just have Oh, just a high volume uh, percentage wise of patients with these concerns. Yeah, Portland's a super bendy place, is it? There's just lots of bendy people there. Uh, it's an unusual place, but this, it's act, this specific clinic has like a name because um, our, um, our owner and 
is head PT. She is, she has hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And as a result, patients are drawn to people who tend to have their same concerns. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, great. So we're going to start off. Simplest question there is, what is hypermobility? Uh, good question. So in my, my perspective, it is from a clinical perspective, people often focus on the joints in from a, from a physiotherapy perspective. So we're, we're looking at uh, just people who have uh, more mobility, more range of motion than your average person. We like to say norms. Uh, I prefer average as a term because it gives it a good distinction. I don't know what normal is a lot of times. I think we don't have great scientific definitions, but uh, people who have beyond average range of motion at the joints tend to be what I would think of as being hypermobile. Wonderful. Yeah, and I think um, I use I often use height as an example. A normal range of height is quite a large range, isn't it? And I think the same thing for the amount of movement that can be in a joint. Um, and then sometimes um, a hypermobile joint can be beneficial as well, as opposed to we, we are, we're talking in this context, you know, obviously if someone's um, coming to your clinic for a hypermobile joint is likely to be problematic, but sometimes it can be beneficial as well. Oh, absolutely. I think um, a lot of athletes are hypermobile. Um, I was just, I have a friend here who he's a, um, um, his name's uh, John Vanden Bogart, and he um, works a lot with um, track athletes. So a lot of javelin, shot put. And I, I once spoke to him about it, and he said that a lot of the um, javelin throwers are actually hypermobile. So in order to, to accomplish the task of being able to throw that javelin as far as they need to, they need to be hypermobile at their sh shoulder. And so, yeah, it can be very advantageous in, in a, a variety of physical activities. Yeah, perfect. And I think um, it's important for us to note that not all hypermobile joints are problematic. I think that's one misconception that can be out there, that, uh, especially in um, children or uh, parents looking at their children. Sometimes I think they can see I, what they might consider a hypermobile joint and think that's immediately problematic, whereas I think we can... Um, fairly well dispel that we've already talked about the big range of normal haven't we but um, also might maybe if they have got a very hypermobile shoulder then see if they can if they can lob a javelin javelin a long way might be a good idea sure yeah I mean well that was an analogy but yeah I mean I do I do get those kind of evaluations where the parent is a little bit uh, very concerned a little bit of a lot very concerned about their their child's um, their perception of their child's hypermobility. And then you look at them and they're not really that hypermobile and they have no pain. They have none of the dizziness. They have nothing. Um, they seem to be very alert and oriented. There's nothing. But uh, yeah, a lot of parents, um, they just, they get very uncomfortable because they see something they just don't like. Um, and I don't know what it's like um, where you are, but a lot of people here are very hypervigilant about their children and always worried. So uh, it can, um, it definitely comes up. Yes. Sure. Let's stick with just joints for the second. Um, sure. How would you differentiate, we mentioned clinically, how do you differentiate out a, um, a problematic hypermobile joint versus a 
joint that just has more mobility than average. So it's not problematic. Is, are there ways of doing that? Uh, well, I mean, you, you've got your one, you got whatever the patient says. So if, if they say it feels unstable or out of place or it's dislocating, um, okay, we got it. We should start looking at if they're reporting pain or um, difficulty with, with tasks, that's a concern. Um, if you can literally see a joint jutting out of place, which I have seen. That's a fascinating thing. I previously, before working at this clinic, I, I, I used to think that th this was not possible from an atraumatic perspective, unless you were like a contortionist or something. Um, <laughs> I've, I've seen it now plenty of times uh, you might want to investigate. Um, but even then I would still, it, a lot of it depends on the patient. You can do your testing. You can do your special tests. Um, for example, just to screen out if they are having symptoms with things. Um, but it just comes down to, do they report a concern or not? If they don't report a concern, maybe it's not an issue. Um, and that's why they have those, like, um, they have that range of diagnoses related to hypermobility spectrum, and you have asymptomatic hypermobility. And I think that's a key distinction. It's just saying there's, no, there's not actually an issue. That comes on to a point I was just going to ask you about, actually, because do you see a um, do you see sporty kids or, or uh, uh, sporty adults and they have an injury and then they also have a hypermobile joint? Is that something that occur and then you you're sort of through your assessment, you're going, yeah, you've got an injury, but it's not related to the fact that the joint's hypermobile. It just there's an and there. It's you're injured. You've got a joint injury and it's hypermobile. I don't get a lot of that. I could imagine that would happen. Because of the clinic, the, the, the reputation of the clinic, we get the referrals when they've already been looked at by another clinician or they've been already told by somebody else that they're hypermobile. Sometimes they're told they have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome mm. um, by somebody, even though they don't have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and they get sent to our clinic um, because we're the specialists in this particular region. Um, but I, I mean, that would definitely be something I would look out for in your general outpatient setting, what you, you described. Um, because people are, would be, a lot of people would be nervous. I mean, you just, when you have pain, you there, there's, it comes with stress and you're under duress in that situation. You're going to look for any explanation that to explain why the pain is occurring. For sure. For sure. Okay, great. So let's go, let's move on to the disorders and the spectrum disorders and, and those kinds of things. So we, you mentioned before about, um, you see a hypermobile joint and then the patient might have other symptoms attached to that as well. So we'll go, we'll call it extra articular, don't we? So not related to the joints. Um, so what other kinds of things are you looking for uh, to escalate that, that hypermobility being sort of outside the joints? Well, I mean, you, so there's that, um, as far as there's a GP toolkit by Dr. Reinhold, mm -hmm. and I, I there was a, there was another co-author to that, but I don't I don't I don't know their name. Um, I apologize for that if you're listening or you end up listening to this. Um, but um, essentially, they came up with for for like for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, they came up with the just gape. So the just being. Um, 
joints and other soft tissues. I don't know how the U applies, but, and then um, gastrointestinal issues, autoimmune or allergy related issues. Um, Let me actually, I am, let's see. And then postural symptoms and then exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So when you start seeing those things, when you start talking about, you know, do you get lightheaded when you stand up very quickly? Um, Do you, are you intolerant to standing for prolonged periods? And it's not pain related necessarily. You get like nausea or disorientation. Um, I'll ask a lot often, you know, do you have brain fog? That's it's, it's not a question I ask a lot in general outpatient. Now I ask it a lot. Um, and you know, you'll see a lot of yes, yes, yes. Um, to these, to these questions. And I don't think that this is isolated just to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I think it applies to hypermobility spectrum disorders in general. Yeah. Real. And so obviously you guys are a bit more of a specialist in, in the clinic you work in. For the rest of us, um, what do you suggest at that point? So you've got a patient in the clinic and they got, they're got they fairly bendy. They've got a lot of, quite a few hypermobile joints. Maybe they're getting a bit dizzy when they stand up, getting some nausea, getting some disorientation. What would you suggest at that point? Is it something where we should refer out to specialists or can we manage that in more general outpatients? Uh, I generally think both. I think you should have an external referral. They need medical management quite often. Mm. Um, but I also think we we have a role. Um, there are some articles, I think it's Briarly 2019. Um, it's basically a, a review, um, basically saying we you can do the stand test to assess for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is said, and that test is said to be more specific than the tilt table test, which is commonly cited. Um, so it might be a useful measure. It just very, um, it's a, it takes t- over 20 minutes. You have to do tw- 20 minutes worth of testing, but you have to educate the patient before and after. So um, depending on how much time you have in the clinic, I don't know, uh, you know, it, I hear differing things regarding your healthcare system in the UK, but um and even here in the U.S., there's a lot of variation. If you have the time, you can do that testing. Um, but yeah, external medical management is critical. And then there is a great deal of uh, things we can do as physiotherapists um, to help these patients. Okay. And, it, and medically, does it make uh, much of a difference to management-wise if, they, if someone is diagnosed Ehlers-Danlos syndrome versus hypermobility spectrum disorder. I know there is some talk about them just basically being the same condition um, in the literature and across across social media and things, and maybe we don't differentiate them out necessarily. Um, but at the moment, do you see different management or is it down to if they've got uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, other than being difficult to say, uh, medically managing that? Um, so many the symptoms they present with, but in general, is there any difference you see? So, so the challenge is one, it, it comes down to, um, your, your healthcare system. So unfortunately, um, from a research standpoint or our research doesn't do a great job of addressing, um, health concerns that are predominantly affecting females. Mm-hmm. Um, and these issues tend to involve females more than males. Um, so, um, 
the diagnosis might make a difference in terms of being taken more seriously by clinicians. Unfortunately, if you look at research um, and you talk to these to this patient population, um, you'll find that a lot of them have had traumatic or adverse um, experiences with clinicians over and over and over again. Um, so I think in that sense, it can make a difference from a like, if you were just purely, if you were like you're, you know, you are just treating the patient and listening to them and being highly appropriate and fully considerate, I don't think it would make a tremendous difference um, inherently. But I think the problem is, is when they're not being taken seriously, when they're not being acknowledged, when somebody is writing them off as just having fibromyalgia, which, by the way, fibromyalgia is a real thing. Um, you can have ED, ED, hypermobility spectrum disorders and or EDS and have fibromyalgia at the same time. But the, it's, it's often very invalidating for these patients when they're told, oh, you just have fibromyalgia or, or there's nothing wrong with you. And they hear this a lot. They hear, you know, when they're being told hysterical or it's being implied things like that, that they, the validation from a diagnosis becomes a big deal. So um, I do think in, in the sense I'm describing, it can make a difference, but again, in an ideal world, it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of how that's communicated is the real key there, isn't it? Like you say, if, if you go, Oh, you're just a bit bendy or you've just got a bit of fibromyalgia, then that's really sort of dismissive, isn't it? Um, whereas like you say, acknowledging what's happening to them is, can be really useful. Um, anything, um, how do I phrase this? Anything dangerous we need to look out for? Any, you, you mentioned red, red flags as a wide, widespread body pain, but anything that we want to be investigating uh, more quickly or more urgently in this population? Uh, yes. Um, so I would be looking at uh, so there's cerebrospinal fluid leaks are an example. So if they start talking about like unusual fluid leaking out of their nose or their mouth and severe disorientation, they can't articulate things. Like they have, they're at this, they have such severe brain fog where they literally cannot speak. Um, and they're just completely like, just, I don't know, uncommunicative. They're like, alert but not fully oriented um i would be i would be considering like this needs some significant medical uh, medical examination because we have seen patients where these these cerebrospinal fluid leaks are an issue and they do the symptoms do mimic um postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome but they can they they can be uh very dramatic much more dramatic than postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome in some ways um, so things like that um, are, are the first thing I think of anything that like you would think normally would be like, whoa, this is not good would be uh, what I would be thinking. So if it's very unusual in your clinic to see something, refer out. It's not you, you're not familiar with it. Refer out. Yeah. OK. Makes great sense. Lovely. OK. So you, you guys in your clinic are obviously treating a lot of these patients with physio, physical therapy, whatever we, whichever side mm -hmm. of the pond we decide to call it, PT, we'll stick with PT, shall we? Um, sure. What's your sort of go-to management strategies? Is, is it, uh, obviously we're going to tailor it to the individual, but have you got sort of overarching strategies that you start to employ? 
Yes. So generally speaking, and unfortunately, there isn't a ton of great research on this topic. As I said, it's underaddressed. Um, I will start with, I, obviously, I'm listening to their goals. And generally, ultimately, we're thinking about their goals. But I'm starting with trying to figure out um, what are they responsive to. So I generally start with two types of things. Um, gentle mo motion, um, not necessarily through the full range, but just um, involving some level of minimal coordination, um, so starting with isolated joints and then building up to multi-joint movements. Um, and then also working on like isometrics to see how they respond to that uh, because patients are coming to me in pain. So we're trying to address the pain. Um, and then based on that, um, we try to kind of progress things. Um, and a lot of times I end up using a lot of resistance training um, with this patient population, sp specifically like your strength and conditioning style of equipment, barbells and kettlebells, um, training bars and such um, uh, with, with some a, with a, a bit more attention to detail with this patient population compared to what I would do with the general outpatient population. Um, but um, that's really it. it just it, working on that, building up, uh, I incorporate proprioception into the tasks. I incorporate um, motor control into the tasks um, and finding ways to, you know, reduce symptoms, but also build them up. Uh, how does it, there's a Canadian physio, Greg Lehman, who likes to say, um, calm things down, build, build shit up. Uh, it was, I think the expression he used, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Real. And what about, um, I see a lot of, uh, things like taping, um, or bracing those kind and, and, and splints for the fingers, probably a slightly different, um, it's slightly different realm, but certainly around shoulders and knees and ankles, lots of lots of strapping and taping and that kind of thing. Is that, is that something that you use a lot of or recommend or where's, where's your thoughts there? So it, it, it's not usually my first choice, but some on occasion on not high, high, a highly common thing, but, you know, maybe like I've used tape with four people overall in two years. Um, it's generally like when all else doesn't work, we'll go to tape so that they have an effective uh, short-term self-management tactic so they can apply the tape. I, I talk a lot of, to them about like um, figuring out like for themselves what feels good and listening to their body. Um, so we'll use tape. Sometimes we, we do um, in our clinic do sizing for the ring splints. Mm -hmm. um, so we will do that and then they can decide if they want to order fancier things than the plastic ones, uh, which they generally do because it's not flattering. Um, but I don't generally use braces unless they explicitly ask for them, which then I'll just refer them to somebody else because I'm not a, I'm not a brace specialist. And I, I question, I have questions about the validity of that. Yeah. I, I've, I've definitely used it occasionally for specific tasks. I remember um, one lady, um, she was going on a walking holiday and there was lots of uneven surfaces. She had a very, very unstable ankle. Um, we used an ankle brace for that holiday period and then 
to just to get her through it and then um and then went away from it so a bit like you've mentioned with the tape it was sort of a, a short-term thing what about um things like other um uh other pain management strategies maybe like uh, managing sleep better and anything that you try to either avoid or incorporate lots of um i I don't, I, I try to avoid being their, their psychologist. Um, so, um, some, so there have been rare cases where patients kind of expect me to be their mental health counselor. Um, I tend to try to encourage them to get me- mental health care. Um, but fortunately for the majority, they are already getting help. Um, and then otherwise, yeah, I do talk about sleep, but it's a difficult thing um, sometimes. Because clinically, some, some patients, their clinical, con, you know, clinical presentation is what's interfering with the sleep. I mean, there was um, uh, Dr. Pazinki, who's an internist um, in, on the east coast of the United States in Maryland, um, did a lecture for the Ehlers-Danlos Society. And he talked about how they did sleep studies on some of these patients, and they're waking up hundreds of times in the middle of the night. It's kind of hard to help somebody with sleep as a physiotherapist when they're waking up hundreds of times, you know? Mm. Um, yes, I can talk about like avoiding light, um, avoiding blue light or whatever, or whatever kind of light um, before you go to bed or eating before you go to bed or being hyper stimulated before you go to bed, tr- you know, trying to do some, some relaxing activities. But um, um we do talk about, we do talk about sleep to some extent, and we do talk about like um, seeking consultation on supplements and medications. And uh, I kind of cover the full gambit of like basic things that they can do to talk to their primary care provider or things they can look into. Um, I'm just not often the one who's like doing the full deep dive on those things. Yeah, for sure. Great. Um, yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Like, like you said, I think, if someone's going, I, l- I go to bed and then I'm laying there wired and I can't go to sleep. That's really different to I fall asleep and then I wake up because my leg hurts and my arm hurts and my back hurts like that. Mm-hmm. It's rather a different, um, different thing, isn't it? Um, how much um, do you, it's probably diff- different in your clinic because they're already attending because they know you, you guys are you guys are the pros. Um, but do you get much pushback? from the patients with regards to increasing activity you mentioned about sort of um resistance exercises that kind of thing do you get anything where because they've had previous experiences either with that type of exercise or other healthcare providers have said that's not a good idea um do you get any pushback from the patients on those things absolutely i mean i even my own i let's just say like i've had referral sources who've said some things that completely contradict what I'm saying um, to patients. And um, there's courses right now, even now that kind of contradict what I do. Um, Some people suggest using machines first with this patient population. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, So in these kind of cases, it's kind of like having the dialogue, having the discussion. I'm very fortunate. I generally have at least an hour with each patient so I can speak to them one-on-one and and, and talk things through and, and figure out what's appropriate. Um, and it's never a forced upon decision. It's never like, hey, you, you have to do this. It's kind of finding what their comfort zone is and, 
just getting on the edge of what they're comfortable with. If it's something that, that somebody is saying something contradictory or they've had an adverse experience, which they do have a lot of adverse experiences by the time they get to see me, um, you know, we're, we're talking out. And then at that point they make a decision and then we go from there. Um, sometimes they're not explicitly stating all their concerns and that might take time. Um, but yeah, you'll definitely get some pushback from time to time with this patient population. And it's very critical just to have a conversation. It's a collaborative um, process. It's not, we're not, uh, it's not a, I'm not dictating anything. I'm, I'm just educating. That's my role. I educate and I guide them. I don't force them to do anything. And I think that is a key distinction that needs to be made. Sure. And I think you said it right at the beginning about listening and absorbing what they say and then utilizing that to then create the programs is, is or the management strategy, I think is the best way forward. And I also really liked what you said about starting um, either something like isometrics or individual joints rather than larger movements. And I think that's something I've definitely employed. So you can, I think it has a few different uh, benefits in that you can assess what reacts well or not so well um, if you if you narrow down the parameters of those exercises, but also can build that trust in you as a as a provider, even if that exercise not isn't going to be the thing that rehabilitates them, but it, it's going to lead on to those other things that will. I think that's I really like that that um, that strategy. Yeah, and um, I, oh sorry, sorry, yeah, okay, I was just going to add something. Um, as far as the exercises go, I do use it's kind of like I'm I'm using the exercises as kind of a form of assessment um, to see what type of activities they could tolerate. So it's like I'm giving them easy exercises, so to speak, quote, quote, unquote, uh, like things that are simpler, but it's just to see like what's their tissue tolerance, what's what's their com comfort, um, and then like using that to kind of figure out what routine we can do. And throughout the course of care, it's just a constant assessment of can they tolerate this? Are they comfortable with this? Are, are they concerned about this? What's the fear there? What's you know, like every part of that sort of quote unquote biopsychosocial um, uh, model is being considered with this. Yeah. yeah. Keep that conversation flowing. I think as soon as the conversation stops, then it's something's going to go wrong somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of a lot of physios out there who who uh, work predominantly with these patients who are going to use um, one approach or another, or try to use the same thing over and over. Uh, with every patient, I think it's important to recognize that uh, it's prob that's probably not ideal. I think we need to we need to examine um, our biases and and also not just jump to to do whatever some quote unquote expert says. I think try to do your own review, try to look at stuff um, and see you know what would work. Uh, there's a lot of research in regards to this population in terms of proprioception relative to everything else in terms of treatment. So like at least um, try to look into that. Um, but um, please be, my only hope is that like when people treat these patients to listen to them and to acknowledge them and, and, and give them permission that if they're not comfortable with physiotherapy, it's okay to say, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I don't want to do this. Um, let them have the choice. Um, I don't think that's covered enough in um, physiotherapy conversations, at least not online. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned earlier about 
or trying not to be dictatorial. Um, and I think it's it's hard, isn't it, when you're when you're the educator, it's hard to not continue educating repeatedly <laughs> and allowing that person to then come back to you, isn't it? And sometimes you need to you need to stop yourself and go, what do you want? Um, and and then have them come back to you with what they want at the time. Because sometimes when you ask that question, you get an answer you weren't expecting at all. Um, so yeah, I, re I really like that. And I think um, making sure that you, it's certainly individualizing the treatment, actually individualizing it, not just saying you're individualizing your approach to the treatment, but actually um, responding to that person in front of you, I think is super important. Yes, I agree, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So um, let's just finish up with where can people find out more about you, Mike? I'm sure people are going to be wanting to uh, follow you on Twitter or anything like that. So um, what, what, where can we find you? I would recommend Twitter probably. Um, uh, my, my handle is at Mike, M-I-K-E, Mocker, M-A-K-H-E-R. Um, you can find me there. That's probably the best source. I, I have a website, but I don't, it's not extensive. It doesn't provide a lot of information, um, but you can follow me on Twitter and I'll interact with you. Um, yeah. I've, I've noticed your Twitter behavior tends to be the NFL and hypermobility. Is that fair? Uh, well, right now it's been NFL <laughs> just because of the playoffs. Now it's, uh, we're not going to talk about the NFL until the off season. It's, in in the U.S., football is a big deal. American <laughs> football. Key. I should give that distinction, not European football, which we call <laughs> soccer. I have no idea where that name came from, but um, yeah, um, you'll find me talking about a, a wide range of things. Sometimes economics, sometimes shows and movies. I'm a big fan of the Marvel DC um, type of thing, but um, yeah, I'm all over the place. But I do often speak about hypermobility. You'll find that me speaking about that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I want to thank you for giving me 40 minutes or so of your time. Uh, my evening, your sort of lunchtime. Um, I'm really grateful for that. And hopefully people have found this useful that we can break through some of the misinformation and, um, uh, and get that to them. And hopefully they'll want to find out a little bit more and individualize their treatments for hypermobility, really. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you.